coral reefs are the most biodiverse habitat on the planet, despite covering less than 1% of the ocean. Over a quarter of all marine life exists in these rainforests of the sea. Gator Halpern is an entrepreneur and environmental activist who is the co-founder and president of Coral Vita, a company created to change the fate of our world's coral reefs. For their work at Coral Vita, Gator and his co-founder, Sam Teicher, have been recognized as Forbes 30 Under 30 Social Entrepreneurs, Echoing Green and JMK Innovation Prize Fellows, and WeWork Creator Awards Global Finalists. Gator Halpern, Coral Vita, welcome to the One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So just tell us first, what sparked your love in coral reefs? What was this journey to founding Coral Vita? It's not exactly straightforward. How did you make your life there? Yeah, so I grew up in San Diego, California. I spent as much time as I could on the beach and in the waves and have a deep connection to the ocean and to nature. But it wasn't a straight path, as you say, towards founding Coral Vita. I actually was working to become a a climate scientist. And I was at graduate school studying land use change and studying how the environment was changing in different parts of the world. was really fortunate to work in South America and both Peru and Brazil and also in South Africa and had some really fulfilling projects where I was able to experience how climate change was affecting both ecosystems and communities around the world and felt like academia wasn't the place where I was going to be able to make the most impact in terms of trying to address some of these issues that I cared deeply about. And so while at graduate school, I I shifted out of this research track and decided I wanted to found a mission-driven company directly addressing one of these issues that I cared about making a difference in. And that's when I connected with my co-founder, Sam Teicher, who also is deeply passionate about the ocean and has been a scuba diver since he was 15 years old. And he was feeling similarly frustrated with the pace of change he was able to make in his previous career path in environmental policy. And we both coalesced around this shared love for the ocean, the shared passion for coral reefs, and decided to try new address coral reef degradation through a a new commercial model trying to scale reef restoration. It really was a a mindset shift towards the urgency of these issues and how we feel like we're going to be able to make the most impact on this ecosystem we care about by creating a mission-driven company and directly trying to develop solutions around these challenges. Yeah, and your solutions are really cool. I, they're just amazing, and I didn't realize it was possible. But before we go into that, we all love the oceans, but the coral reefs are just amazing. Just to go into it, because they're magic. I think magic is a, a perfect word for it. And for those listeners out there who haven't the chance to snorkel, scuba dive, swim on coral reefs, I really encourage you, if you can, to try to visit a coral reef and experience the the beauty and splendor that they are. They're one of the real treasures that we have on Earth. It's like being transported to a magical world that's unlike anything you can see on land. And it's incredible how much life exists. Coral reefs are the most biodiverse habitat on the planet, despite covering less than 
1% of the ocean area, they have over a quarter of all marine life exists in these rainforests of the sea. And if you think of a coral reef as a rainforest, the trees are the coral themselves, which are incredible organisms. And so magic is really the right word to describe them. They're these animals that are one of the original forms of animal life. The second branch of the animal kingdom is actually Nidaria, which includes coral and jellyfish. So an ancient animal, but they have a symbiotic relationship with algae. So inside the animal tissue is this zooxanthellae, this algae that does photosynthesis. So that like algae does, like plants do, it's able to capture sunlight and convert it into sugars and energy. And so it's an animal, but it's got plants that live inside it, this algae, and then even more wild, it grows a skeleton that is rock. So coral skeleton is actually calcium carbonate, which is limestone. And most of the limestone that exists on the earth was grown by these organisms. And so they're animals, plants inside of them that grow rock as skeleton. And the rock skeletons form these incredibly intricate structures that are coral reefs that can you know, grow for thousands of miles and the corals can live for thousands of years to be seen from space and to create these essential ecosystems that are really the cornerstone of all of life in the ocean and therefore much of life on Earth. Indeed, there are these underground sustainable cities. And I know uh, this uh, was talking to the, the Prisco Architecture Prize organizers and these current generation of architects are also like studying. What can we learn from them as times like a, there's a circular economy in terms of you know, habitat, food and all integrated. So what you're doing is helping restore that in a quite innovative way that I didn't realize was possible. Just explain to us what Coral Vita does. Right. So we just described the beauty and magic of coral reefs. They're also incredibly important economically because they are drivers of ecotourism economies around the world. But even more importantly, they're the foundation of fisheries throughout the tropics. So coral reefs actually are the breeding grounds for most of the fish in the tropics. And then they're also essential barriers for coastal communities from the open ocean. So they're called a barrier reef because they form this natural seawall between the open ocean and coastal communities, protecting them from storm surges and erosion. So really essential ecosystems for humans and communities around the world, as well as these natural ocean creatures. And unfortunately, all of that value, as well as the magic and beauty, is being lost around the world at really frightening rates. So coral reefs are really the first major ecosystem that we're seeing collapse globally due to climate change. Over half of the world's reefs have already died. That's just since 1970 or so when we started taking baselines. And scientists project that primarily due to climate change, over 95% of reefs will be dead by 2050. And so this is an incredibly tragic issue from an ecological standpoint, but it's also a, a serious catastrophe socioeconomically for all the communities and the up to a billion people around the world that depend upon these coral reefs for their livelihoods.
And so at Coral Vita, we are trying to create a new model to restore and sustain these ecosystems so that they can continue to thrive and benefit these communities for decades and generations to come. And we do that by creating high-tech land-based coral farms where we can do some really exciting science to boost the resiliency of these corals to the warming and acidifying oceans that threaten their condition. We can accelerate growth rates so we can grow mature coral colonies in months rather than decades and scale these production processes so that we can provide diverse and resilient coral to restoration projects around regions. And so we've been doing that here in the Bahamas for the past handful of years and are very excited to bring our solution and, and technologies to all the places in the world that are in desperate need of reef restoration. And that's amazing how you can accelerate the growth because that's what we really need to do is we need to tackle these problems in a, in a timely manner. You can accelerate growth by f- up to 50 times, is that right? Yeah, so in our land-based coral farms, we can do a few different exciting processes. One of them is called microfragmentation. And this is a method that was pioneered by some of our colleagues in Florida, as well as in Hawaii and a few other places where you can actually break coral up into tiny little fragments. And coral are actually colonial creatures. So if you see one coral, it's not a single animal. It's actually hundreds or thousands of animals all growing together in a column. And what you can do is actually break it apart into tiny fragments. And each of those fragments has the ability, if you give them the right substrate and nutrients and water quality, to grow into its own colony. And we can actually accelerate that growth rate in our farms by microfragmenting corals into tiny pieces, putting them on substrate that mimics their skeleton, the calcium carbonate that they're growing and actually fusing the corals together across these molds. So we break the coral apart, fuse them back together, break them apart, fuse them together. And through that process, we can make the coral in all out growth mode all the time and substitute this limestone rock that takes sometimes decades to grow with these different substrate molds we provide them with. So we can grow a kind of a dinner plate size coral, depending on the species, in about a year, whereas in nature, that would take 40, 50 years sometimes to reach that size. And so once we're able to grow those corals to a, a mature state in our farm, we can then scuba dive down and actually plant them back into reefs and, and bring these ecosystems back to life. That's so exciting. I was also interested in the resilience. How do you make them resilient to climate change and acidification? Yeah, so that's essential. We don't want to spend all the time and effort and money to plant these corals out there and then they meet the same fate of the, the reef around them and the next El Nino event, you see the corals bleach and die. And so we spend a lot of time and, and effort looking into the resiliency of the corals that were growing. And in our land-based facilities, we can really closely control the water quality that our corals are growing. So typically they're kind of given the spa treatment. We give them perfect conditions, trying to grow them as fast as we possibly can. But then we also can take them to the gym and we basically crank up the heat, crank up the acidity and the corals get stressed out. 
then we could cool it back down. We could crank it back up, cool it back down. And that process does a couple of things. First, it builds up a little bit of tolerance within the corals that we're growing. And so they've seen those conditions before. They've had these exercises that they've gone through. And that's been shown once you plant those corals back out on the reef, they're less likely to bleach than corals that haven't been put through that process before. But even more importantly, what we can do is see which individual genotypes, so which DNA types of coral actually survive better in those conditions. We can crank up the heat and mimic an El Nino in 2030 or 2050 or 2100. And most of the corals suffer greatly in those conditions, but you'll find some that actually are able to cope better with those future ocean conditions. And we can select for those resilient genotypes and even breed those genotypes together to create new generations of coral that have these traits, these genes that'll allow them to be more resilient and adaptive towards the warming and acidifying ocean conditions. So we're selecting for resilience in this process that has been pioneered by colleagues of ours in Australia and in, in Hawaii who have dubbed the field assisted evolution. It's really we're helping accelerate the coral's ability to adapt and evolve to the changing ocean conditions that are threatening them. Yeah, and you mentioned different regions and how you're selecting those sites. There's so many areas of urgency and what is important to address uh, depending on the site. Definitely. So there's unfortunately no shortage of coral reefs that need restoring around the world. They're really collapsing globally, although in some places they're they're doing better than others. We have primarily worked in the Caribbean and, and here in the Bahamas where the situation is really dire. The reefs here in the Bahamas are already over 90% dead in most places. And so it's an urgent need to restore and sustain these ecosystems as quickly as possible. But another essential part is to work with the species and the corals that you have in whichever region. And so here in the Bahamas, we're only using Bahamian corals. We're trying to build resilience into the species and the genetic bank that exists here in the Bahamas. Uh, and it would be similar anywhere else we're working. We've actually just started a large project in the Red Sea with the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia, who's investing heavily into scaling reef restoration. We're one of the partners there, completely different corals, completely different ecosystem, different species. And so it is a challenge to adapt to different species, but there's also a lot that's very similar. And the production processes that work here in the Caribbean have also been shown to work in Australia and to work in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. And so there is an ability to take the different models that have been developed around the world to have research collaborations with different organizations and different oceans that are working on different challenges and figure out the best restoration methods for any particular region. And there's no one size fits all, but there's definitely a lot of lessons that we learn from different colleagues and, and projects around the world. Yeah. And speaking of how you adapt to the environment, there's also a political environment. And when you're talking about Saudi Arabia or Dubai and some of those challenges, perhaps there are other protocols and 
cultural exchanges that you have to work out in order to create a project. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's a challenge expanding any business internationally is the nuances of culture and politics and policies. And even more so when you're dealing with a natural resource like coral reefs, which are so closely intertwined with the communities that live alongside them and the fishermen and fisher folks that are dependent upon these coral reefs for their livelihoods and the complex nature that goes into the cultural dynamics existing behind a restoration project. And so it's essential that wherever us as Coral Vita go, but really wherever any reef restoration or restoration project in general is being carried out, there needs to be very close collaboration and connections with the local governments. And so wherever we work, we're really considerate about how we're connecting with the local communities and the local governments and making sure that it's not a solution we're bringing from afar and putting it top down into a different geography. It really needs to be closely entwined with the stakeholders that are present in any location. And so here in the Bahamas, that's something we've spent a lot of time and effort doing is making sure that our coral farm is not only a production facility for our reef restoration work, but it's also a education facility for the local community, as well as an ecotourism attraction for the eye. And so we have regular school groups through the farm learning about what we're doing about the coral reef. We have fishermen that come through and help build stewardship over the, the reef environment. Later this year, we're hosting a community event with the Ministry of Grand Bahama trying to open our doors to as many people on the island as we can and bring the community to be involved with us in our project, as well as obviously employing locals and having locals manage our farm in any particular region where we're working. So connecting with the local government and the local community is essential for the success of really any restoration project, including any of ours. Yes. And in, regarding the international outreach, I believe it's also useful because I think Sam Teichert has a background in international relations. Definitely. Yeah. So my co-founder, Sam Teicher, before we started Coral Vida, he was in the environmental policy world. He had a, a short stint at the Center for Environmental Quality in the Obama White House and also worked for an amazing group called the Global Island Partnership which is a coalition of island nations and nations with islands that are working to address the kind of political and environmental issues that exist within small island developing states. And so we're very fortunate to have a lot of good friends and colleagues who are working in that space. And there's amazing work being done by those types of communities when it comes to climate change, because Countries like the Bahamas and small island states around the world are really at the front lines in terms of the impacts to climate change. And a lot of the solutions that the world needs are being created and developed within these small island developing nations. And we're very honored to be part of that community. Yeah, thank you. It really is great to hear about all the involvement you do with the local communities. I was wondering if you could share some success stories or experiences from these community involvement efforts. Definitely. So it's one of the best parts of my job to be able to have the local communities come and become part of our project here at Coral Vita. That takes 
a bunch of different forms, one of which is the employees that we've been able to have within our team and, and really rise up our ranks. And, you know, I can name a, a number of them that have come in as interns straight out of the Marine Science School here in the Bahamas and have worked their way up to be managers here at the Coral Farm and, and really essential parts of our team. We also have been able to facilitate a community-based mangrove restoration project. So we've partnered with the Bahamas Water Keepers Association. And here at our farm, we have now a, a 30,000 mangroves growing, 30,000 mangrove propagules in a nursery that we outplant with them each year and having the school groups come in and have a campaign to collect mangroves and who can collect the most mangroves wins a prize. And to go out into the mangrove flats and plant corals is another amazing experience we've had the community, but really getting people out into nature and seeing the impact we're making is among the most rewarding experiences and being able to take our staff as well as school groups and, and locals snorkeling and diving on reefs that they know and love that they can see how we're impacting and bringing those back to life is a really rewarding experience. That really does sound like a rewarding experience. And on top of your work with local residents, could you speak a bit more to how you collaborate with resorts and corporations in reef stewardship? Definitely. So Coral Vita is a commercial company. We're taking a for-profit approach to reef restoration because we believe that's how we're going to be able to really scale reef restoration and make the most impact possible on coral reef health. So we're a mission-driven commercial organization and we work closely with a range of stakeholders that benefit from having a healthy reef. So we go to partners who are resorts or developers, cruise lines, and also governments, port authorities, and we have a commercial conversation with them about how valuable their coral reef is, either offshore of their development or as a gets the traction for the resort and we provide them the service of reef restoration in order to restore and sustain that asset that they have for their company. And so it's a little bit of a different conversation than is traditionally had in kind of the nonprofit space for reef restoration, where we're working directly with industry stakeholders and being contracted by them to carry out restoration as a service. And so um, we're working here with a, a local developer, as well as with the Global Fund for Coral Reefs and the Grand Bahama Port Authority, as well as the National Government of the Bahamas and building reef restoration projects that can generate value to these different stakeholders. Yes, there truly is an abundance of stakeholders involved in coral restoration. Do you have any success stories that you could share with us about working with these stakeholders and getting to see one of these sites come back to life after restoration? Yeah. So one success story here in Grand Bahama in particular is a project we've done off of Smith's Point, which is a local fishing community on the island of Grand Bahama. And unfortunately, the reef offshore of this community has degraded over the years all the way to the point where the coastline was eroding so fast they had to build a new seawall to keep the road from collapsing into the ocean because there was no longer this reef offshore that would protect this community's coastline. 
And so we were able to partner with the Bahamian government and the Department of Agriculture actually to do a campaign around restoring this reef, which enabled us to grow a few thousand corals and plant them out in front of this community, as well as to do a educational program. So creating different videos and materials and basically a marketing campaign showing how reef restoration is so important and essential to the livelihoods of people like those in Smith's Point. And that's been a, a really rewarding project over the past couple of years. We've been able to plant a bunch of coral into the reef. So it's called Rainbow Reef, a little bit towards the eastern part. And the most magical part of my job is being able to go there, you know, a year later and see the corals growing, thriving, and really filling in fish life coming back to that site. And yeah, I'm excited to, to go back and see how it's doing soon. It is truly wonderful to hear about the successes of Coral Vita's restoration mission. My very first dive took me to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, a day etched into my memory as one filled with wonder and revelation. Beneath the water's surface, I encountered a vibrant array of colorful fish, curious marine gastropods, and colossal clams that defied belief. It was like stepping into a whole new world. However, this transformative experience wasn't just about the breathtaking beauty I witnessed. It was also a stark encounter with a harsh reality. Amidst these awe-inspiring creatures lay what initially appeared as an underwater cemetery, a sea teeming with bleached white corals. As I delved deeper into my newfound passion for marine ecology, I came to understand that bleached corals were not necessarily a death sentence. Instead, they signaled distress and vulnerability. This revelation sparked hope within me, igniting a sense of responsibility to be part of the solution. A few summers back, I got the chance to engage in coral reef restoration research in Thailand, where I monitored the health of corals for local government monitoring and reporting. Having had such an intimate experience getting to know individual reefs each and every day for the whole summer, the stories that Gator shares and knowing that there are people fighting for these reefs brings me incredible warmth and gratitude. Now, back to the interview. Yes. And so we went into a little bit about the magic of corals and just as a beautiful underwater cities. But there's also, I don't like to think about a utilitarian, but some people don't know that they're getting cancer medicines from corals. These are selfish reasons why we should preserve coral reefs. But what would we be without our oceans and coral reefs? It's really hard to over-exaggerate the importance of our oceans on life on earth in general. We certainly wouldn't be here without them. One of my favorite ways to remember it is by just pausing and taking a couple of breaths. And if your listeners just close your eyes and take two breaths. So one of those two breaths you take came from the ocean. You wouldn't have had the oxygen to breathe that second breath without the oxygen created and generated by the ocean. They, the life in the ocean and the power that exists within regulates the entire climate on earth and it provides for the means of life on our planet. And so it's again, difficult to over-exaggerate the importance of the ocean towards creating a world we can live in. And it's also difficult to over-exaggerate the importance of coral reefs to life in the ocean. 
And so they're really a cornerstone of all life in the ocean. As I said before, over a quarter of all marine life, all the species in the ocean are in these coral reef environments. And I encourage, again, anyone with the opportunity to make a journey to see a coral reef. And as you snorkel or swim within these ecosystems, you'll really understand the magic that exists within. Oh, that really puts it into perspective. I appreciate the prayerful, this element of wonder and respect we have for that, but we also have to see what can we do to improve this so that the next generations can experience the wonder of the oceans. Yeah, that was beautifully said. I think there's an intricate challenge that exists when it comes to climate change. There are so many different pieces that exist within the challenge we face as humanity and as a civilization at this moment in time. And I think in the majority of the challenges that we face as humanity and climate change being central to them, in my opinion, there are solutions that we know exist and we can be hopeful and understand that we can make change. We can make a difference. And the real challenge is taking that step in investing in our future and in making the right choices in terms of the impacts that we want to leave on this planet. And so that, you know, that starts with how we choose individually with our wallets to vote for the things that matter to us through our purchasing. But it also stems towards, you know, when you're able to hold your political leaders accountable and at the ballot box, make sure that we are voting for the kind of leadership we need in order to bring the world along a path that is more in balance with nature and more respectful to the communities around the world that are suffering greatly because of how we're currently extracting resources and and taking nature for granted. And so that mindset shift is really important. And I'm very hopeful that with that, we'll be able to support the solutions needed to bring about a, a much better world in the years ahead. Yes. And I believe that's where storytelling is really important, you know, to bring people on board, whether it's writing a letter to your congressman or getting people involved, you know, that aren't climate scientists who aren't marine biologists. In what for you is the importance of the environmental humanities? I mean, we've spoken to filmmakers from underwater, uh, filmmakers from the Chasing Coral film and uh, the sculptor Jason DeCarries Taylor, who makes these great underwater sculptures that drive tourists away from maybe the fragile coral reefs. So for you, what is part of that storytelling process to get people on board and perhaps get young people part of the education about our oceans? Really important to be able to communicate the importance and the difference that we can make in any of these kind of restoration or climate change initiatives. I'm lucky enough to be a friend of Jeff Orlovsky, the filmmaker who made Chasing Coral and a number of other amazing films. He's both a friend and a hero of mine because of how he was able to facilitate the conversation to another level and make it something that is known around the world. You know, another hero, uh, David Attenborough, has probably done more for the environmental movement than anyone else on earth by just making it engaging to see and understand what's 
going on in ecosystems all around the planet. And really that understanding and knowledge is the foundation to being able to make change moving forward. And so at Coral Vita, we try to tell our story through social media channels and making videos and being involved in press articles and podcasts. This one, so I, I appreciate you spreading the word and being a part of the movement to trying to make a positive impact. It's really important at kind of this international level of trying to raise and elevate the conversation, uh, but it's also really important from a grassroots level too. And whether that's in school groups here at our coral farm having field trips come and, and learn about what's happening, or if it's as simple as having a conversation with your sibling or your friends or your parents and making sure that these issues don't go undiscussed, but are a part of everyday conversation and are something that we can be thoughtful of as we go through our daily life, I think is really important to be able to make that kind of mindset shift we need to address these issues in the, the long term. Yeah. And in that long term, I believe you're using a kind of, I'm just worried of a question about technology. I believe you use a kind of CRISPR or you use different technologies. So we're not using CRISPR. We're not genetically modifying any of the corals, but we are using a number of different technologies to figure out which coral genotypes are the most resilient. And so... CRISPR is kind of taking a genotype and splicing some other gene that wouldn't naturally occur and insert it into the genome of an organism. We're not doing that. All we're doing is looking at the genome of an organism, figuring out which genes are expressed in different ways to make these corals more resilient and trying to naturally breed these corals together to select for these resilient traits. And so it's more akin to breeding plants where we've bred plants for thousands of years so that tomatoes are red and juicy and can, you know, be shipped around the world. We're breeding corals so that once we plant them back out in the ocean, they can thrive despite the climate change threats they face. And so we haven't done any genetic modification along the CRISPR lines yet and don't have any plans to anytime soon. Although we do know a number of researchers who are looking into that space and, and I'm hopeful that we won't have to go down that route in terms of trying to keep these ecosystems alive in the future. Yeah, well, that's great because I wasn't sure. I'm always glad when it's accelerated growth, but not so fast that you can't see what you're doing and you're not doing damage. But about the future and about AI and, you know, there's so many possibilities with the new technologies uh, out there. Uh, sometimes I feel like we're going too fast. So what are your reflections mm. on that? How we can embrace the opportunities? Maybe it helps you with forecasting and seeing weather patterns or what are those, what are the useful aspects of the new technologies and, you know, on your reflections about maybe governance and things we ought to avoid? Definitely. It's a great question. I think it's a fascinating time to be alive and to be working in these kind of fields. The pace of change is incredible, really, with AI and large language models with the amount of data that we're able to collect and process. And it comes with enormous challenges in terms of the governance issues and making sure that these new tools are not being used in ways that can be detrimental to 
society and the environment and, and be used by bad actors. And I'm not going to claim to be an expert on those governance issues and how we can go about trying to mitigate the dangers that exist there. But at the same time, the opportunity that these technologies create is unbelievable. It's almost hard to grasp how much positive impact could be done. AI and other technologies used in a positive light, in a, in a way to create more equitable, more beneficial communities and ecosystems around the world. And so it's a huge challenge, but a huge opportunity. And at Coral Vita, we are working diligently to try to harness the power of artificial intelligence, as well as, you know, the power of capitalism, which can be a force for evil and has been a force for much evil, but also can be a force for incredible prosperity. And so the challenge is trying to harness these incredibly powerful tools that humans have created and direct them towards making positive impact on our planet and for communities around the world. And at Coral Vita, we are developing systems where we gather immense amount of data about our production process, image data, environmental data, labor data. And we've in a fairly short time created what I think is likely the, the world's largest database in terms of coral production and new AI models and computer vision machine learning are helping us be able to optimize our production models, make things more effective and more efficient and be able to analyze coral growth rates and health and be able to more effectively do repressuration at scale in a way that can make very positive impacts for the ocean and for communities that live alongside these reefs. So I do find it incredibly exciting to be able to incorporate these technologies in a way that benefits the earth. On the topic of adapting and moving with this changing world, what do you see as the future for coral reefs and marine ecosystems? What would a successful restoration look like to you? Great question. So at Coral Vita, we like to describe ourselves as optimistic realists. And I think there's plenty of reasons to be hopeful that we'll be able to have a future where generations to come can enjoy the beauty of coral reefs and communities can continue to benefit from the ecosystem services that are generated by coral reef ecosystems. At the same time, we should be realistic in terms of how large the scale of the issue is and how much coral reef has already died and is already set to die because of issues that you know we've done in the past. And so even if we stop emitting carbon dioxide tomorrow, there's enough carbon built up in the oceans and the atmosphere that coral will continue to die for decades to come before things level off and get back to a, a state of balance. And so with that reality, we need to do everything we can to sustain as much coral reef as we can and as many different species, as many different genotypes as possible to sustain the diversity necessary in these ecosystems. And so I think the future won't look like the past. I, I don't think it's realistic to say that in 
30 years time, the coral reefs will look like they did a hundred years ago, but I think it's realistic to be optimistic in that we can sustain these reefs in a way that is incredibly meaningful and incredibly beneficial and valuable for different communities that depend upon them. We can have different species of coral. We could build resilience into those species and plant them out in a quantity that's going to be able to sustain these ecosystem services and benefit communities. Yes. And so much that has happened to our coral reefs and our oceans, I think we've done this by our deliberate acts of forgetting. We've forgotten this kind of you know, traditional practices, the intergenerational knowledge. And I'm sure as you work with communities and fishermen who perhaps have these indigenous practices or they have passed on this knowledge that's just in more imbalance with the planet. So as you think back on some of those teachers, whether they're indigenous teachers in your own family, teachers that have been important for you, you know, you know, what were some of the things that have been passed on to you that have been ported that you wish to pass on for future generations? Thanks for bringing that up. I mean, the importance of traditional knowledge, whether it be indigenous communities or whether it be the, the fisher folks here in the Bahamas that have lived directly alongside these reefs for many generations, there's no substitute for the knowledge and connection that exists between these communities and people with their ecosystems that they live among and are a critical part of. And so understanding how humans are a piece of these ecosystems that we're working to restore and how they've been able to live symbiotically with different ecosystems around the world is an incredible way to understand how we'd be able to create balance within these ecosystems and with nature. And so an example from here in the Bahamas is how closely we've worked with some of the fishing communities out in the east end of Grand Bahama, where you pass the last road and have to take a boat to different keys off the east end of Grand Bahama, where you can interact with and, and meet and we've become good friends with a number of different families that live in very remote communities where you can only get there by boat and they live directly in connection with the ocean. Everything they do and are able to derive really comes from this beautiful interaction that they have with the ocean and with nature and with the coral reefs and mangroves that they live alongside. And so being able to see that connection and work with those communities to help give them some tools to restore some of these ecosystems that unfortunately are suffering for no fault of those communities. It's, it's one of the real tragedies of climate change that those at the front lines being most affected played little to no role in the problem existing in the first place. And they're the ones first to suffer from climate change. And so it's definitely vitally important that those voices and that traditional knowledge is not only incorporated, but really made a central piece of the climate solutions as we move forward. Yes, that's so important. And I just remember the words of the Native American Takasan ghost horse, and it just it hit home for me. I think it's like what you're saying, you know, life is not about dogma and ownership and domination. And as he explained it, 
the different uh, Native American languages is composed of mainly verbs, not nouns. It's a sense of energy, and we all uh, receive the energy uh, from the sun, also from the oceans. And it's the relationship that's more important than an object ownership domination one, and that domination has no relationship to the earth that we are living. It doesn't belong to us. We're guests on, the, on this planet. That's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and I like that every second breath is the ocean. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Or as you think about the next generation and the kind of world that we're leaving for it, what would you like them to know, preserve, and remember? So I don't have any children of my own yet, but I did just welcome to our family, our first nephew. My brother Griffin had a, a child a couple of months ago, and it's amazing to see the, the next generation growing. I am excited for them to see the impact that we've tried to make in a positive light. And I look forward to being able to swim through beautiful ecosystems and see the magic we've been talking about, the sea turtles, rays, and myriad of animal life that exists within the ocean ecosystem and to be able to pass on to the next generations this feeling of being one small piece of this much greater ecosystem that supports us all. Well, that's so well said, and we're lucky to have you. So thank you, Gator Halpern and Coral Vita, for sharing your passion, your innovative approach, and ongoing commitment to restoring coral reefs and helping support the species and communities that depend on them so that future generations can experience the wonders of the ocean. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and creative process. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And if uh, you or any of your listeners have the chance to come down and visit us in the Bahamas, we'd love to show you around the coral farm. Uh, and hopefully we'll bring a coral farm somewhere close to you too sometime soon. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Alexa Potter with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producers on this episode were Katie Foster and Alexa Potter. One Planet podcast is produced by Mia Funk. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.